Uh, gives a great introduction to the book of Job. And just know that uh, we're going to look at this over two weeks, so I'm not saying everything uh, this morning. I'm just introducing parts of the story. And it is a story. We get the narrative arc. We're probably actually most familiar with the narrative, the, the story of Job. Job is, um, seems to be a righteous dude, righteous guy, and things are going along really, really well for Job until one day they're not, and things really fall apart. He loses his livelihood, he loses people he loves, and he loses his health. And, and then his friends show up to, you know, quote-unquote, comfort him, and if you start diving into the things they say, I, it increasingly becomes less and less and less helpful. And we'll look at some of that in a moment and what his friends say and unpack a little bit of it. Um, you know, in the spirit, so Susan, a couple weeks back, if you were at the Epiphany service, invited us to notice, to notice God, to notice where God might be working or how God might be speaking. And so in the spirit of Epiphany, I am going to invite you to notice a few things. And I think the first noticing is this. I, I, I've had a bit of, uh, you don't need to notice this part, but I've had a bit of a discouraging week. That happens to you too. There's, we sort of ride waves, I think, during the pandemic, and for a variety of reasons, this week was discouraging for me, and I was like, ah. Oh. And then I read Job, and I think, oh, my life's not so bad. All right? So that's the first noticing, right? And uh, Calvin and Hobbes puts it in perspective. Here's a Calvin comic for you. Well, I suppose I don't, things don't get worse than hanging from a helium balloon a mile above some unrecognized state. Of course, my grip could weaken and I could get sucked into a jet intake. And then he says, that's one of the remarkable things about life. It's never so bad that it can't get worse. <laughs> so I jest somewhat. But it is the sense that, you know, like Job's life was pretty miserable and not nearly as bad or mine's not nearly as bad as his. Put the joke aside for a moment, though, and when you listen into sort of the, the big contours, the big pieces of Job's experience, right? He loses his livelihood. He loses people he loves. He loses his health. It sounds a lot like people that you and I might know in this moment. Right? There are people in this city, there are friends that you have that have lost their livelihoods during the pandemic. There are people that uh, we know that have lost loved ones. Uh, it might be, that might have been your experience. Right? There are people that we know, or maybe you, that have lost health for a time. And it seems to me like a fairly timely book in that sense. This is where we live. We have Job-like experiences, actually. Which then brings us to my second sort of broad noticing. Let me just set it up for you. Um, as the video introduced, there's a theological question being wrestled with in the book of Job. Is God just? Does God, is God fair? Is God actually ruling the universe according to justice? And where this gets located, I mean, it gets located in, in Deuteronomy, actually, where Deuteronomy, as God sets up the covenant, he says, if you keep the covenant, you'll be rewarded, you'll be blessed, and if you fail to keep the covenant, you'll be cursed, right? Things will fall apart for you. Let me read to you how this gets picked up in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 21. Trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things. 
So it's this very sort of um, binary sort of view of life. It's very, um, it's a little bit uh, sort of insular. If you're good, God rewards you. If you're bad, God will punish you, is, is the, the assumption here. And, and I want you to know, just we need to pause here and realize how deeply that's embedded in our psyche, that kind of thinking. Um, so if you remember the s- stories of Jesus, in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And right at the beginning of the story, do you remember what the disciples asked Jesus? Why is this guy blind? Whose sin is it, they ask? Is it his sin or is it his parents' sin that he's blind? Right? That's exactly what's going on here. That's this type of thinking where it's like God punishes the wicked. So this guy's blind. He's been punished. So clearly, he's done something wrong. And I have heard people, and I have at times, uh, more times probably than I care to admit, had this kind of thinking, right? Life falls apart at some level, and I think, what have I done to displease God? God is punishing me. And if only I could get my life pulled back together, God will reward me. And this kind of thinking, I think, does permeate us. And it's not without... It's not without merit, right? Generally, that's a true statement, as we'll, we'll unpack that some more when we get to the book of Proverbs. But, but this is the assumption that Job's friends are, are operating under. And so let's listen to a couple of their comments, all right? So they, they assume that it's, there's a real logic to this, right? God rewards the righteous, punishes the wicked. Job, is, his life is miserable. He's being punished. Therefore, Job is wicked. He's sinned, right? You see the logic in this. And Eliphaz, his first friend, speaks. He takes sort of the first volley at this. In chapter 4, uh, verse 7 to 9, I'm just going to pick up little excerpts through this. Consider now, he says, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. Right? You reap what you sow. Job, you've clearly sown some bitter roots. You've sinned somewhere along the way, and you're reaping the consequences. Uh, Not to be outdone, Bildad... These guys, by the way, have great names. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They're awesome names. Anyway, that's the best part about them. So uh, Bildad, not to be undone, let me read a section from his speech in chapter 8, verses 2 to 7. So Job defends himself. He says, I haven't done anything wrong that I know about. And listen to Bildad's words. How long will you say such things, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now God will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Right? Not the most sensitive of guys, Bildad, because here he's pointing out, hey, Job, your, your kids, they died, and it's because of their sin they died. 
Like it's like a week and a half after the event, and he's just kind of trying to explain to them that they died because of their sin. And Job continues to defend himself. And Eliphaz ups his game, actually. And I'll pick up now a little later in the book, chapter 22. And um, the video alluded to this. They're making things up. Is it your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is it because you're righteous, Job? Is it not your wickedness that's so great? Are not your sins endless? And now he starts enumerating them very helpfully to Job. You demand security from your relatives for no reason. You strip people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary. And you withheld food from the hungry. Though you're a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it, you sent the widows away empty, empty-handed. You broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flo- the floodwaters cover you. I mean, there's no evidence that Job was guilty of any of those things. He's just sort of making stuff up at a given point. And this does bring me now to my second noticing in this text as we listen in on the friends who operate out of this very sort of contained logic. And that's to say that theological answers and advice aren't often helpful, certainly not in the moment of suffering. Um, Job actually calls them out on this. He says, he, he describes as, you are miserable comforters. And for sure. Like, how is that helpful to accuse a guy who's just lost his kids, said, hey, by the way, it's the kid's own fault because they sinned. That's simply not a helpful thing to say. It's, not, it's certainly not offering Job any comfort whatsoever. In fact, Job says in chapter 13, he said, if you were silent, you would have been wise is what he says to them, flat out to their face, right? Remember, wisdom is not only knowing what to say, but when to say it. And Job's friends seemed to lack that. They thought they knew all the answers and felt like Job needed to hear all the answers in that moment. It's not always helpful. This brings into view the importance of presence, right? For all of my criticism of Job's friends here, they do one thing incredibly well. The first seven days they visit Job, they just sit with him in silence. They just sit with him. They're present to him. And I'm reminded of um, my eldest brother, uh, Eric. You haven't met. He doesn't live in this country. He lives, he sort of lives everywhere. He's a pilot. And he's still flying. He still has a job. Anyway, but back in many years ago, he worked in the territories, Northwest Territories, um, and was in a very serious accident while he was loading freight onto a plane. A steel strap broke and it flipped back and it cut his eyeball. Like it shattered his eye, actually. Uh, not just a cut above the eye or close to the eye, like the eyeball was gone. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps not life-threatening, but certainly career-threatening. He's a pilot. He needs to see. And so they medevaced him out from where he was to Edmonton. And I was in, living here in Calgary. And I took the drive up to Edmonton to go visit him in hospital. And it was pretty early days. He was still under a lot of um, drugs and whatnot and wasn't super coherent. And I spent the day with him. And I bet you I talked to him for maybe 10 minutes that day. Maybe. But it wasn't, that wasn't the point. <laughs> 
the point was to be with them, just to sit with them. What Job's friends initially did really well. In the face of suffering, don't underestimate your presence simply being with. Don't think you need all the answers. Job's friends thought they had all the answers, and it truly, truly was not helpful to Job. What was helpful, and what Job then later calls them out on, he says, you would have been wise, you would have been helpful if you'd stayed silent. So that's my second noticing. Notice the power and the importance of presence, of simply being with someone who's suffering. Uh, my brother recovered, by the way. Uh, it's a remarkable story I could tell you in full another time. My third noticing, let me set this up for you. Through it all, Job, so we've looked very briefly at his friends and some of the logic they operate out of. Job actually operates out of the same logic but draws different conclusions. So Job 2 uh, understands that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, but he sees himself as righteous, so his conclusion then is God isn't just. Or God has gone silent, God doesn't care. Listen to some of Job's speeches. And again, I'm just picking up a few. But in chapter 19, this is what Job says. If it's true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. Am I at the right? Yeah, I'm right there. Okay, good. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. Job here, he's accusing God of being unjust. Why have he done this? And a later point, chapter 23, let me read that to you. Job then says that God's indifferent to his plight. Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy on me in spite of my groaning. If only, if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When I... When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse. In other words, Job's looking for God, but just can't see God anymore. God's abandoned him and his story. And this is sort of, Job sort of vacillates between these points. He bounces back and forth. That God is unjust, God is, you know, not doing things fairly and right anymore, or God is just, he's on vacation. He's somewhere else. He doesn't care anymore. And it's important that we read these texts, particularly ones of Job, but I think of his friends as well. We read them in the narrative structure, the story structure of this book, right? The story is introduced by this court, this heavenly court, where Satan accuses Job and that little story, and then it actually ends with us revisiting that. Um, and these are the story structures, but there is no sense in the story in the narrative, in the poetry of Job, that he's aware of this. We get to see what's going on in the heavenlies, on the front end and on the tail end. But there's no sense that Job ever knew about that. I don't, 
God never explains it, never says anything. There's no indication that Job ever found out. And it brings me to my third noticing, which is we need to remain open to mystery. And this is hard for us as moderns and maybe as evangelicals. We, we want certainties. But the fact is we don't know everything. Job's friends didn't know what was going on. Job didn't know what was going on. We know some things, but there are some things that seem unclear, or at least they're shrouded, they're, they're mystery. And I think it's important to just be honest here and say, I don't actually know everything that's going on. This is actually, every now and then, Job's friends say some pretty incredible things. And you have to sort of sift through it, because a lot of what they're saying is, and, and God will say this when God shows up, we'll look at it next week, God calls out his, these friends as misguided. But every now and then they say some incredible things, and I, I wish Zophar had paid attention to his own words. Let me read to you what Zophar says in chapter 11. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. We can't. We get to see a few things, maybe even quite a few things, but we don't see all things. There's mystery in this story for Job, where Job's sitting and looking, he can't figure it out. And it's really difficult to keep ourselves open to mystery. Uh, we'll unpack that a little bit more next week as, as God and God's words come into view in this story and as God reveals himself and what God's asking. But for now, I just want you to sort of sit with the noticings of pay attention to the importance of presence in your own suffering, but also, I think, and particularly in the suffering of others. It's not always helpful to show up with what you think are the right answers. And then be open to mystery. Be open to the fact that there are things in the story that we don't actually know. Now, where would we go with all this? Well, this week I invite you to, there's a couple things you could do. You don't need to do them all. You don't need to do any. This is invitational. But you might want to take some time to cry out to God. We sang that. You know, come to my help, O God. Lord, hurry to my rescue. And you might just want to pick up sort of the, the gist of Job's early speeches and cry out to God. You might actually be in a place of suffering and struggle. Many of us are as we weather this pandemic. Our livelihoods have been affected or our health is compromised or at least threatened. People we know are sick or perhaps people we know have died. We could, so I would invite you to take a Job-like posture and cry out to God. Tell God how you feel. Because Job certainly was doing that. And so that would be one response, is just take some time to let God know where you are. A second response would be if you'd like to dialogue more about some of these interchanges. There's, um, Susan and I talk about this all the time when we're preparing sermons. There's, um, my sermon usually fits on about two pages printed, and there's about eight pages that are in my garbage can that don't make the cut. 
right? There's just lots of stuff going on here Then you're always cutting, cutting, cutting to sort of fit within a sermon form. And so I'm going to invite you on Tuesday evening, if you're interested, um, to just, there's a Zoom link. It got sent out to, to you, and if you don't have it, let me know, and we'll send it again. Uh, Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock, there's this little thing that I'm calling, as I was saying, a token nod to G.K. Chesterton. Don't worry about it. Um, and it's just a chance for you to show up and ask some questions. And you literally can show up, ask your question, and then end the Zoom call. You can show up for two minutes, ask your question, get a, get a bit of feedback, and then leave. There's no obligation to come. I'll just sit there with my novel, and I'll be reading until somebody logs on. It'll be open. That Zoom meeting will be open from 7 to 8. And it's a drop-in. Drop-in for one minute, drop-in for 20 minutes, drop-in for the whole time. Um, but it's a chance for us to dialogue a little bit more about the nuances of a book like Job. Okay, so that would be another place. And, and know that I'm not, I'm going to try really hard to not give you pat answers. I don't want to sort of take the, 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 the tone of Job's friends, right? So it may be that we just need to lament together. The third thing you could do if you wish, and again, these are invitational, uh, they're, they're on Sermons Plus uh, to be reminded, or at least this one I'm about to say is, is you could watch the movie The Tree of Life. And The Tree of Life, um, most of you will hate it, so I'll just put that out there. Um, uh, it's cause, not because it's a bad movie, but because it's made in the way movies aren't made. It's almost like a, think of it almost like a series of pictures. Like it's, it's very artsy. And you just got to work at it a little bit. So there's actually a couple articles that I've, I've added links to on Sermons Plus that I might suggest you read. They're very short articles. They'll take you about two minutes to read. But it'll help you as you watch the movie because it's a little bit tricky to watch. Um, but it, the Tree of Life is, is, is um, most commentators and movie critics think it's telling the, the book of Job in movie form. Um, and I have it on good record. I have two friends whom I respect greatly that have recommended this movie. I've watched it, but these friends just rave about it. So I invite you to watch it as a artistic uh, way to access this book. So those would be three things, okay? It's, we're only partially through this story, so it's a bit incomplete, but I want to leave you there, okay? Remember the importance of presence, of being with being with yourself, being with another who's struggling, and remain open to mystery in the midst of it. Let me pray, and then I would actually like to invite us into, into communion, which is going to be our response here, or whether you're, uh, where you are at home, our response to what we've sung and heard. Let's pray. God, there is... Um, there is mystery. And that isn't always easy to embrace. We like complete certainties. We like things to be black and white. And I'm sure in your perspective, they are clear. They are certain. But I don't see with your perspective. I don't know all that you know. And so I'm left with... Incompletes. I'm left with sometimes guessing, sometimes not knowing. But God, you are here. 
And as we'll see, you are with Job and you are with us in the midst of our struggles. Hold us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.